0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. A quick warning before we get started. There is a little salty language in today's episode. When the Colonial Pipeline system got hacked, and the gas market across the East Coast was paralyzed and prices shot up, I kept thinking about something David Uberti told me last year. David covers cybersecurity for the Wall Street Journal, and he writes a lot about ransomware attacks, where hackers lock up a company's data in demand for ransom. And that's what happened to Colonial. What he told me was that the hackers who do this think a lot about their reputations, So when I called him up this week, I had to ask about that. They want to be known as like being easy to work with, having good customer service. Why?
1: Well, I think as with any enterprise, you really have a focus on the brand.
0: Yeah, even cyber criminals have a brand.
1: In the private sector, you know, if I am trying to work with uh, a different company in the US, totally legitimate reasons, I worry about that company's brand. And the same is true in some respects, for hacking groups.
0: It just seems to me like if you're thinking about Darkseid, this group that's apparently linked to hacking the Colonial Pipeline, paralyzing the East Coast gas market, um, it seems like that's pretty bad for your
1: brand. Not exactly a shining moment for them. So, I mean, to take a step back, the reason why a brand is important is because when a hacking group attacks a particular company, they get inside their computer systems, they deploy ransomware. Executives at that company have to decide, to what extent do we trust this group?
0: They got to ask, are these hackers going to let us run the pipeline again, get gas to millions of angry drivers if we pay up? Basically, should we pay the ransom that they're asking for?
1: Some of these companies that negotiate ransoms uh, for victims, they basically keep dossiers about some of these ransomware organizations. They do brand and market research uh, to see which hacking groups are reliable uh, in sort of a weird criminal way and which are not to be trusted.
0: Most of the time, these negotiations are quiet. You and I don't hear about them, and the company that gets hacked might pay the ransom but never talk about it. But that is not what happened with the very public colonial hack. This cyber attack is expected to push gas prices even higher. Now, investigators are still trying to figure out who was behind this hack, but it forced the shutdown of the colonial pipeline, which supplies 45% of all the fuel consumed on the East Coast. Eventually, the apparent hackers, that's the group called Darkside, put out a contrite statement about the whole thing, like a corporation that screwed up. And other hackers seem mad at them for drawing so much attention to the ransomware industry. Today on the show, David takes us inside the weird world of ransomware, Why hacker groups have to worry about their reps, how companies are trying and mostly failing to gain the upper hand against them, and how the ransomware industry is taking a page from the McDonald's business model. There's no one typical target of a ransomware attack. Sometimes hackers go after corporations like Colonial with deep pockets. Sometimes they attack schools or small businesses, which don't have as much money but have weaker defenses. Not long before I talked with him, David had been on the phone with a negotiator who helps places that have been hacked. And some of his recent clients included a florist and a laundromat. The groups that are doing the hacking are pretty varied, too. In reading your reporting, I've been really struck by how sophisticated an ecosystem we're talking about here, that there are all these specialties and subspecialties. Can you explain kind of who
1: does what? Certainly, yeah. It's almost like hacking has developed its own supply chain for ransomware. With his own specializations and different groups that may farm out different capabilities elsewhere. So to sort of take you through the supply chain, you know, maybe you have one set of specialists who are really good at breaking into companies' computer networks. They'll figure out how to do that and either advertise their capability to do that uh, to other groups or say that they've done so, they've actually established a foothold in a computer network and either sell or lease that foothold to other folks. And then they pass along that information to a group that writes software to deploy ransomware. So maybe you have specialists that are particularly good at coding that sort of malicious software. And then that group can in turn farm out their progress to another set of hackers who may actually deploy that ransomware for any particular company. So I was talking to a, you know an expert yesterday who works on this stuff, and they were saying it's gotten so sophisticated that in some cases these ransomware groups have effectively built out just platforms that non-technical people can use. Uh, She even used the term point and click for how simple it was.
0: So if I, Lizzie O'Leary, want to launch a ransomware attack on, I don't know, some company, Slate, sorry, Slate, I can do that with the software?
1: I think you, Lizzie O'Leary, might need to study a little bit, but I don't think it'd be (laughs) that big of a leap.
0: One model, likely what was used in the colonial hack, is called ransomware as a service. It's a lot like software as a service, where a central owner licenses out their software, like Dropbox or Slack. Just, in this case, for crime.
1: So essentially, I mean, think of a franchise model. Any chain restaurant, McDonald's or whatever. You know, you have a core owner or core group of people who maybe started the organization. They developed a secret recipe, secret sauce to go on your Big Mac. And then they farmed that out to different people who could run franchises elsewhere and basically spread the brand, spread spread the business, and give that early owner a cut of the action. That's essentially what's happening with some of these ransomware groups. You had some hackers who developed a piece of code, this ransomware strain, and they are basically allowing other people to come in and say, you know, you can use this code and you can deploy it on certain types of organizations, uh, which these folks may or may not follow. And then you give us between 10 or 25 percent of the proceeds.
0: How many operators are doing this kind of thing?
1: There's a handful that incident responders tend to focus on. And they kind of ebb and flow over the course of years. So there's a strain of ransomware called Ryuk several years ago. There's a strain of ransomware called Maze. There's also a ransomware group known as R-Evil, which is not a made up name. In those groups, basically wax and wane um, based on how successful they are, some of the law enforcement pushback that they're getting and their ability to sort of stay focused and attack certain types of companies successfully.
0: One group that's been growing over the last year is Darkseid. It was likely their ransomware that took down the colonial pipeline. Most observers who study ransomware think Darkseid is based in Eastern Europe, maybe Russia. And some research says that since the beginning of this year, the group has made about $60 million. Darkseid seems to specialize in ransomware as a service. And until recently, when its website disappeared, it had job boards and a blog with vaguely corporate language and a set of guiding principles. Darkseid has this completely bananas why choose us section that was on their website that they advertised to potential customers. I mean, I just want to read some of this. We are a new product on the market, but that does not mean we have no experience and we came from nowhere. We receive millions of dollars profit by partnering with other well-known crypto lockers. I feel like I'm reading like the, you know, who we are on an insurance company's website.
1: Yeah and then they, they you know go on to say that you know because you work with us you will have the reputation of working with us within the ransomware world so they're even looking out for their employees next career moves <laughs>
0: Um there's this interesting thing in here that says based on our principles we will not attack the following targets so medicine um funeral services education nonprofit organizations and governments like they they're selling themselves as like a a high-minded group
1: It's interesting that you point that out Uh, You know, hospitals, schools, governments, those tend to be the places that inflict the most pain. And maybe some of these hackers, uh, you know, want to see themselves as almost Robin Hood-like figures. But, I mean, as we've seen Hmm. with Colonial, um, you know, with the U.S. in particular, most of the quote-unquote infrastructure in the U.S. is owned by private companies. So you could be going after this faceless oil and gas company that no one has ever really heard of. Um, But that could have a huge impact on folks in North Carolina who are trying to fill up their Ford F-150 or whatever. So I think that the lines, particularly for U.S. companies, because so much of our infrastructure is really privatized, have really blurred for a lot of these victims.
0: I want to walk through what happened with Colonial. Um, According to your colleagues at the Journal, on May 7th, an employee found a ransom note from hackers on a control room computer, and then everything was locked. How quickly did you realize, oh, this is a
1: big one? Uh, I realized it when I got the news alert Saturday morning about 8 a.m. as I was in bed saying, man, my weekend is fucking screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think it happens pretty fast, you know? Once a firm like Colonial can sort of understand what data is locked up, they can sort of chart out what it will take to get back online, which could be very significant. And then they bring in third-party groups to help them investigate this sort of thing and basically make a call. Now, the interesting thing with them is just by virtue of them being an oil and gas company and you know transporting so much fuel to the East Coast, they made a very, very quick call to pay this hacker $4.4 million dollars. Oftentimes you see negotiations over these things drawn out over the course of, of days or potentially longer. Um, but they obviously thought, you know, just given the various pressures and the potential impact that they needed to make a decision really fast.
0: You had told me last year, and you've written about this, that typically the FBI says don't pay. But as you noted, the, the CEO of Colonial, Joseph Blunt, said they paid the ransom in consultation with experts who had previously dealt with the criminal organization behind the attacks. So that sentence to me is like, okay, they know who they're dealing with and they are assessing this group's track record. What's going on behind the scenes there?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of different types of companies that have sprung up in response to the ransomware uh, surge. You know, one of them is is what we in the cyber world call incident response, which is basically when you have a breach, you have a problem, you call up a company that specializes in basically how to deal with the fallout from a hack. And they can tell you with a pretty good degree of certainty, you know, this group is a group that can successfully, you know, unlock some of the data they they said that they can unlock or this group maybe is a group that is more willing to talk down their demand from, you know, 10 million dollars to 5 million dollars potentially. Separate from that, you also have negotiators who come in. And those are folks who communicate directly with some of these ransomware groups, either through emails or or other online chat rooms, et cetera. And they will play this weird sort of cat and mouse game where on the one hand, they're trying to stall for as long as possible because they wanna give companies' internal security teams an opportunity to figure out exactly what happened and what was accessed or stolen. On the other hand, they want to poke the hackers a little bit to try to glean some insight, like some hints about what it is exactly they think they have, whether that's particularly Mm. sensitive data, um, something that's even more valuable in some respect, whether it's personal data about an executive, whether it's HR data. And then ultimately, those two types of firms will consult with executives at a company. They're saying, hey, we think that if you can, if you decide to pay this money, it'll end up working out for you.
0: As the threat of ransomware has grown and more and more companies have hired people to help them defend themselves, Another issue has
1: emerged. Who is on the hook for all the money? Over the last year, insurers have experienced a total upheaval in the market for for this sort of thing. And that's driven largely by ransomware because these incidents cost so much money. So oftentimes insurers, they have in the past offered companies full coverage for ransomware incidents. They say, hey, we'll, we'll pay for your incident response. Uh, if you eventually feel the need to pay the ransom, we'll cover that as well. But just by virtue of some of these attackers requesting or demanding more and more money or doing so much damage to computer systems that the sort of fallout costs tens of millions of dollars in some cases, these insurers aren't making money like they used to. So what you've seen is some companies begin to restrict what their insurance covers. So there's been a few examples of of insurers who say we will no longer cover ransomware payments, for example. Really? Others have just jacked up their prices to an incredible extent. I talked to a cyber insurer recently. He's got about 20,000 policyholders across the country. He said across his book over the last year, they've raised prices by 20 to 25%. So you have this huge, huge uptick in what companies are paying to prevent this sort of thing. And then separately that is driving this big discussion among insurance people to sort of probe and question to what extent the proliferation of cyber insurance is actually helping feed some of these attacks and whether attackers, once they break into computer systems, they actually move around and try to find a company's insurance policy so they know exactly what it is they could ask for and, you know, probably get back in return.
0: I guess it's just so fascinating to me that this industry has sprung up playing defense, both in terms of insurance and the lawyers and consultants who are doing the negotiating. And it makes me wonder, is there an alternative to doing that? Or do the ransomware attackers sort of have the companies over a barrel?
1: I do tend to think that the ransomware operators do have an upper hand. I mean, they can go from company to company, They don't really fear that much retribution. If a company does, you know, eventually ward off their attack or recover some of their systems after this, they can just move on to the next one.
0: When we come back, DarkSide says it's shutting down. But they would say that, wouldn't they?
1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: After the colonial hack and all the attention it got, DarkSide released a message saying it was shutting down. It said its affiliate program, that's the ransomware as a service, was closed, adding, stay safe and good luck. Basically, sorry, everyone, but you got to get your ransomware somewhere else now. Thinking about what comes next and using Darkseid as a test case, they say they're shutting down. Do you think that's true?
1: Darkseid as a sort of brand, as we were mentioning earlier, it might be gone and this might be sort of the uh, exit stage right for it. Um, But have those hackers who sort of comprised Darkseid gone anywhere? Probably not. Um, It's likely that they'll rebrand in some other way or maybe just continue working with other ransomware groups, which kind of shows how pernicious this problem really is.
0: There are a couple of things that make me feel like this incident was an inflection point for how we think about ransomware. And I'm going to get to the more official one in a second. But the first one was this thing that popped up on the Krebs on Security blog, Brian Krebs. Research is cybersecurity. And it was basically a note that in a Russian cyber forum, they were saying, Hey, stop talking about ransomware. Like, shh, the word ransomware is bad now. And it made me wonder if you think this stuff is going to slow a little bit or just go underground, or they're just not going
1: to talk about it. I think the latter is probably. True. I mean, it's such a good business model. If you look through like the history of hacking maybe 10 years ago or so, I mean, a hacker would need to break into a company's system, steal some data, then monetize it on the dark web somewhere. So they're selling data to someone who might have an interest in it for, for whatever reason. Now they can sort of cut out that middle process and just go directly through companies. And if you talk to folks about why this is such a difficult problem, it's because it's not a cybersecurity problem per se. It's the problem of this business model and how the business model is evolving over time. So not only are hackers going into companies and locking up important data that those companies need to function, but they're also stealing that data now um, and they're threatening to publish it in a sort of double extortion scheme. So you have this sort of business innovation happening among hackers, uh, which is really, really the crux of this. And I don't expect that to stop.
0: Just thinking about how public all of this was, the pipeline shut for six days, gas prices go up to their highest in more than six years. Was this a successful ransomware attack or or was it maybe unsuccessful because of its very public nature and the potential kind of outcome for the group that did it?
1: (sighs) I mean, on the one hand, uh, they fleeced this company for $4.4 million, Um, so in a very sort of narrow or tactical sense, I guess it was successful. Uh, On the other hand, there aren't many cyber attacks that really spill out into the open like this. Um, This affected people who had never really considered what ransomware was or how it could affect their daily lives. And that has really galvanized, you know, people both in the business community and then also I think a lot of policymakers, folks in Washington, to take a much harder stance on this. So its impact on sort of the broader ransomware environment, while it's still early days, I mean, it could have sort of a negative impact in that sense.
0: The Biden administration has now issued an executive order saying federal contractors have to tell the government if their cybersecurity has been breached. Something Colonial didn't actually do immediately.
1: I think the the biggest takeaway is that we talk in cybersecurity so much in hypotheticals of, you know, what a potential hacker could do if they were to breach an airport or a dam on a river or some other piece of infrastructure. And in the U.S., this is the first time that the hypothetical really flipped into the real world. And I think that's sort of a wake up call for a lot of folks. Uh, there's definitely been a lot of soul searching in the cybersecurity community over the last six months because we've had a string of pretty bad attacks. You have the SolarWinds attack, which mm-hmm. happened or was revealed in December. You had a similar hack on uh, Microsoft Exchange servers, which is an email client that Microsoft uses, which affected many, many different businesses. But the Colonial hack really hit different because it affected so many people who don't care about software don't know anything about Microsoft or SolarWinds or the digital supply chain. They cared about the price of gas, and that's always gonna be different.
0: David Uberti, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. David Uberti is a cybersecurity reporter at the Wall Street Journal. That is our show for today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and edited by Allison Benedict and Tori Bosch. Our executive producer is Alicia Montgomery. TBD is also part of the larger What Next family, and it's part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I want to recommend you go back and listen to Wednesday's episode of What Next, which is a conversation with a woman who used to work for Andrew Cuomo on what she saw and what it did to her. Mary Harris will be back in your ears on Monday. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.